0: The scripture reading and the sermon for today will come from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Starting in Mark 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In chapter 3, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. But then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Good morning. It's a joy for me to be back. This is now my second time to come visit you here at this church to share God's word. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 2 and follow along. I'm blessed this morning to have part of my family with me. My wife and two of my children are here today, and I have two other children who are back at home with our, at our home church in Abilene. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. So far in Mark's gospel, when Jesus enters a home, someone gets healed. You can check that out and look back in chapter 1, first part of chapter 2. You have at Simon and Andrew's house, Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever and Jesus touched her by the hand and helped her up and she began to serve them and, and she was healed. And then last week is my understanding that you were reading the story of four men who had a friend, a paralyzed friend, who needed to get to Jesus to be healed, but there was no room in in the house, and so they lowered him through the roof to get to Jesus, and he was healed physically and spiritually. Today there's a house. It's Levi's house. I wonder who's going to be healed. Well, let's look and see who's sick. That might give us a clue. Once again, Jesus goes out. By the lake. And I don't know if he was just drawn back to the water or if he just liked peaceful strolls along the beach, but he's out there by the lake. And the crowds find him. So he begins to teach them. And Jesus finds Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at at the tax collector's booth. With one imperative, two short words follow me. Jesus calls him. And this is the third time. In Mark's Gospel where we have a call narrative. It was Simon and Andrew, James and John, and now Levi is being called to follow. And I wish we had more commentary about their thoughts and their motivation, because we don't get what they're thinking, we just get what they're doing. They leave what they're doing, and they immediately follow Jesus, just in obedience. So, this story makes a quick jump from Jesus saying, follow me, Next scene, they're at Levi's house And it reminds me of Jesus and another tax collector Do you remember the day when Jesus said Hey, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree I'm coming to your house today And I want to know, what's Jesus' deal with tax collectors And eating at their house? He's like inviting himself over to these people's houses Why does he keep doing that? Well, It's almost like, to me, I think Jesus is working with tax collectors to show them how to share their possessions rather than take other people's possessions. How to offer hospitality instead of taking and demanding the possessions of others. So it's entirely possible that the sick person we're looking for today could be Levi, the homeowner. He might have been sick from greed or deceit or extortion, Or hoarding possessions in his big house. His big house. Take a look with me at the people in verse 15 who are here. Jesus is having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. That's a big place. Levi's done well for himself, and I think that's part of the problem. He's done well for himself at the expense of other people, and he's done this by sinning. And the fact that Jesus is at Levi's house, right in the middle of this bleak vacuum of moral bankruptcy, really bothers the Pharisees. It just rubs them the wrong way. They couldn't grasp why someone, claiming to be a religious leader like Jesus, would stoop so low as to eat with morally deficient people. And the Pharisees asked this question, It's a question that we need to answer. Why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why would he do that? Okay, so I have a friend named Richard Beck, who's a professor at ACU. He's an author. He is uh, an avid blogger, book writer. And I've heard him talk on this story before, and he made some really insightful points that, that impacted me. I want to share with you because he exposes some of the thinking that the Pharisees were doing, which needs to be exposed because it's not helpful, and in many cases, it's wrong. And so I want to share with you just four brief points from what Dr. Richard Beck has said about this story and how the Pharisees may have been confused because they think, first, that boundaries should be created and patrolled when it comes to people. The Pharisees thought that an alien object or an alien substance, a foul substance, an impure thing, should be quarantined like cordoned off, and and the Pharisees were separating from them. Now, the the Pharisees were separating themselves from what they considered to be an impure person or group of people, keeping them at a distance. But this wasn't the way of Jesus. This wasn't the way Jesus operated. He tore down social barriers. He touched lepers. He welcomed refugees. And so the Pharisees are thinking about human interaction in a different way. The second thing is that the Pharisees were thinking that Human proximity to another person means moral similarity. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus is hanging out with those people, so he must therefore be just like those people. And that's wrong. That's clearly not what's happening. Um, it, it, It may be easy to think that way, but it's not necessarily true that just because two people are near each other, they're exactly alike. The third thing, he says, is that the Pharisees were thinking, once you're impure... You're always impure. And there's no way to get over that. They thought that once something is contaminated, it's always contaminated. And even after a period of purification or repentance, they're, they're still sinners. And when people think this, sinners become stigmatized. And there's no room for grace or forgiveness or the transformative work of God in a person's life. In fact, I think it's interesting that the, sinner, that the, that the Pharisees use the term sinners and tax collectors, to describe the people in Levi's house. But in verse 15, we read something that was different. In verse 15, it says, there were many who were following him. I think that these people had already had a conversion, maybe, in their heart. They were starting to investigate Jesus. They were starting to follow Jesus. And rather than identify them as people who were following Jesus, they still pegged them with that name of what they want to call them. It's easier to just call them something rather than to see who they're becoming. They probably thought once a sinner and tax collector, always a sinner and tax collector. But Jesus saw these people as who they were becoming, not as what they had done. You see, we are a people who believe there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's what we believe. That's what we have just sung. The fourth thing that Richard Beck says is that negative forces are always dominant. The Pharisees were thinking that negative forces are always dominant, but that's not always true, is it? The Pharisees thought that the impure substance makes a pure substance unclean. And this might be true of food. We we know about this, that some foods can be contaminated by unclean substances, the things that shouldn't touch or get near it. But we're talking about people here. So when Jesus interacts with unclean people, he reverses the direction we usually see in food contamination. He doesn't become impure. He makes unclean holy, holy. Now, I want to acknowledge that's not always the way it goes. And And I know that. Even in this culture long ago, they knew that a good person could be taken down a few moral notches by a sinner. And this fear seemed to be the dominant narrative in their human interactions. In fact, I think the Pharisees might have been looking at Jesus through the lens of a play that they had seen. See, about 300 BC, there is this playwright named Menander who created a play called Theus, and in the play, there's this phrase, there's this line, and the line goes, Bad company corrupts good character. Maybe you've heard that before. Paul seemed to quote it in 1 Corinthians, this this quote from this play. And and we know that Paul has quoted other poets other places. But the Pharisees may have been thinking this thought, this principle, it applies to Jesus. that bad company is corrupting this this person, Jesus. And that's what's happening here. But what the Pharisees didn't see is that that phrase only explains half Of human interactions. There's another proverb that is also true about human interaction because bad company corrupts good character, only deals with the way good people are taken down. But what about the way that sinful people are redeemed? What kind of a phrase or proverb would we need for that? Well, Jesus tells them it goes like this It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. So why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Is it because Jesus endorses or approves of the extortion of the tax collectors? No. Is it because Jesus agrees with the sinful lifestyle of the people he's spending time with? No. He's going to call them to something else. Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors to invite them to holiness, to invite them to a better life. But he's got to walk a mile in their shoes first, all the way to Levi's house. This approach that Jesus takes with sinners and tax collectors is a much better bedside manner than the gruff and arrogant Pharisees who shout prescriptions for health from a safe and sanitary distance. Jesus is the type of doctor who goes into the room, kneels down beside the bed of the patient, holds the patient's hand, and says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make you better, to make you well. And that's the type of doctor we need. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees had forgotten what Jesus knew, that the church is created for people who are not yet perfect. It exists for the sake of those who aren't perfect, who need healing. Jesus was doing ministry based on this truth. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. So two weeks ago, when I was here last, we talked about how we are like ambassadors to the world we have a job like those who have been given a message to share in a foreign place so the church is like an embassy but today this new image emerges of the church that i want to highlight the church is like a hospital there are sick people here trying to get well and you're going to find all types of people in a hospital You have doctors, you have nurses, you have staff, you have social workers, you have people visiting the hospital, checking in on patients. A hospital is a type of place where anybody is welcome, except for those who would like to harm the patients. But everyone else is welcome. See, we need a community of faith like that, where there are other disciples struggling to be faithful and pure to help us overcome sin and find hope in a difficult world. We need this church hospital to be hospitable. And, and let me emphasize two things that I just said. Number one, we need to recognize that the church will be full of people who are sick. Like a hospital will be full of people who are sick. Can you imagine investing a couple million dollars in building a hospital and then proclaiming, okay, but there's one rule, no sick people allowed. <laughs> right, it's ridiculous. And yet, there are some people outside these walls, Who are hearing that message from Christians, and that's not true. That's not helpful. And I'm not saying you're communicating that. I'm saying the broader culture sometimes hears that, and and it's a message that's not right, and that's not a message we want to communicate. But the second thing I want to say is that sick people should never be left that way in our care. The whole reason for the hospital's existence is to move people towards wholeness. From brokenness to healing, from hurt to healing, from sin to holiness, the sick become healthy, who become healers themselves. Those emerging from the darkness become lights themselves. And let me say just a, some, a few words about light. If you have a match or an unlit candle in the darkness, the darkness is more powerful until the candle or the la- or the match is lit, and then the light wins. The light wins. What the Pharisees were looking at in Jesus, but they didn't see because they were looking with human eyes, is the spiritual reality that John 1 explains. John 1 says, In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives life light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him the pharisees were saying that the light of the world was going to be contaminated by darkness as if that were possible the most holy person to ever walk the earth was misread and misunderstood by the religious leaders and accused of being a sinner. So maybe the sick people we're looking for today are the Pharisees. They were sick with arrogance and prejudice and self-righteousness. We know their hearts continued to be hard and unhealed because they kept badgering Jesus and his disciples about all the things they thought they were doing wrong. We didn't read these few verses in between the story of Levi in chapter 3 today. But if you'll take a look at the questions, three, three questions happen in 2.17. We've heard it. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? But look at 2.18. Why don't your disciples fast when our disciples fast? And then look at verse 24. Why are your disciples picking heads of grain to eat in the fields on the Sabbath? The Pharisees just keep coming after Jesus and his disciples over and over. They criticize who Jesus eats with, when they don't eat, when they do eat. They've got all these rules. But the answer to all their questions is the same. The kingdom of God has come near. The good news is being shared with the world. Jesus, the Son of God, is bringing good news to the world for all people. And he comes with authority over the impurity of sin. Jesus comes with authority over their rules for the Sabbath. Jesus comes with authority over their social prejudice that they were clinging to in their hearts. Jesus breaks in, and good news is he has authority over all these things. And so I was thinking, what authority does Jesus have over our lives that maybe we're still clinging to, trying to claim ownership of? Are there some areas of our lives where Jesus has a word to speak of good news, but we are just holding tightly to the way that we believe our lives need to be run? What about our passions and our desires and our talents and our gifts? These powerful resources that can be used for the kingdom and used for good, sometimes I recognize I hold on to them so tightly, kind of like people trying to go out and gather too much manna. Instead of trusting in my daily bread, I, I, I take it into my home. And during the week, if I've taken in more than I need, it just spoils and rots overnight. Instead of trusting in the authority of God and Jesus. And I was thinking about the story of Jesus in Levi's house. Do we ever need to invite Jesus into our house? What happens when Jesus enters a house? He exposes the ways that people have been living. He overturns tables, he tears down idols in our hearts by convicting us of sin. And in fact, there's this really interesting verse in an Old Testament book, and the verse is, "Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs." Now, I had to smile a little bit this morning when I heard that already being read, because it's in Jonah 2 verse eight. That was not coordinated. It just sort of happened that way. (laughs) Praise God. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to the sins that are killing them forfeit the health that could be theirs. The economy of the kingdom of God challenges us about the way things really work. When we share our possessions and our power and our positions and all of our resources, it doesn't threaten our status, instead, it expands the kingdom. It validates Jesus' claim that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it confirms the truth that loving your neighbor as yourself really creates healthier communities. So at Levi's house, the people who were sick, who knew they needed a doctor, are the ones who were healed. The other sick people left unchanged. But there's one more house today. In chapter 3. It's the synagogue. It's God's house. So I wonder what Jesus is going to do here today. Some of the Pharisees were sneaking around looking for a way to catch Jesus. They were in secret, looking for a reason to accuse him. They were watching to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. It doesn't say they were looking to see if he could heal on the Sabbath. They knew he could heal. Would he do it? Could we catch him doing this thing that we think is wrong? They'd seen it before, they just didn't want him to do it. So finally, Jesus is going to ask these guys a question who have been asking him over and over. They've been hounding him with their questions, and one criticism after another, they've asked him, Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? And now it's Jesus' turn. He's going to ask them a question. So he does it publicly. He could have done it privately, but he has the man with the disabled hand stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked the question, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And this is not the question they were expecting. This is not the question they wanted. Everyone knows that there is a question about the Sabbath and the question goes like this, is it lawful to work on the Sabbath or to rest? That's the Sabbath question. And Jesus introduces a new question with new categories for viewing this day called Sabbath. Jesus asks, is it lawful to do good or evil, to save or to kill? And it's an easy question to answer unless the simple answer incriminates you. Then you really don't want to answer it. But it's still the right answer. And the Pharisees wouldn't say a word. And this makes Jesus livid. Now, When I think of Jesus, there are a lot of images that come to mind. Loving Jesus, shepherd Jesus, teaching Jesus, compassionate Jesus, saving Jesus. Jesus is angry. Angry at the refusal to respond to a simple question. Angry at their clinging to religious laws instead of clinging to God. He's angry because they have stubborn hearts. And there's such irony here in this situation The Pharisees thought that they were honoring God on the Sabbath by doing no work. But they were dishonoring God by refusing to let good work happen. And if I'm supposed to look at myself in the text and say, where in the world do I find myself? Do I ever try to stop good work from happening? Because it doesn't match my rules? Or my expectations for how things should happen. But on the Sabbath, Jesus wants to heal a man's disabled hand. And what are they doing? Plotting to kill a person's entire body. Which, incidentally, the plotting to kill someone is probably a lot of work. Right? They were clearly the ones breaking the law. And they accused Jesus of doing wrong. It's no wonder Jesus was angry. The religious leaders' pride and control stood in the way of life and healing for this sick man. So I think Jesus is a lot like a doctor who has the cure for the world. He's just looking for some people to come alongside him and help administer the good news to people so that they can find healing. Jesus, the great physician, brings healing and health and life wherever he goes. This is one sign of the kingdom of God among us. Where you find sinners, sinners repenting, where you find spiritually sick people becoming well, you know that Jesus is near. It's a sign of the kingdom. And so I'm wondering, is it possible that Jesus and the kingdom of God could be breaking in among us and we miss it like the Pharisees and religious leaders did? Is it possible that religious people would see others doing kingdom work and misinterpret it as unholy or breaking the rules? Just like in the story of the prodigal son. In the story of the prodigal son, I read and I recognize that religious people, good people, could see the Father God dispensing mercy and say it's not fair. And so I have to leave room for the possibility that God might be doing something in the world that I don't understand. As I investigate and see what is happening. And more personally, I have to leave room for the possibility that God could be doing something new and ask me to be a part of it. And I'm thinking about how no one had seen it rain, much less no one had built an ark, when God told Noah to do all that. Abraham had never traveled to a distant land that God would tell him about on the way before God said, Abraham, it's time to go. And no one had left shepherding To lead an entire nation of refugees through the desert until God said, Moses, this is your purpose. This is what you're going to do. As followers of Jesus, we might be invited to participate in God's work in new and unexpected ways. And God has consistently been calling people to new acts of obedience and service in the kingdom. And so, what would it be like to be receptive and open to God doing something new in this generation? A new ministry a new thing on campus, a new thing in this city. What would it be like to see God and participate and join God doing that? So this week, I want to offer a challenge to you. Invite Jesus to your house. He wants to come anyway. Maybe he's inviting himself. But he would like for you to be hospitable to that, receptive to that. And you know what happens when Jesus enters your house. You know that as you enter God's presence and Jesus' presence through worship, or silence, or prayer, or reading God's word, or serving others, that Jesus brings hope and healing. Remember that you have been called a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are, in yourself, the house of God. Also, this week, if you've ever felt the disappointment of repetitive sin... If you know what it's like to fail over and over and over, or if you understand addiction all too well, or rejection, and you're here, you're in the right place. This church hospital will welcome you, help bind up your wounds, and set you on the path toward healing as we all move towards healing and walk with Jesus. So in just a few moments, there are going to be elders and staff around the room and in the back who welcome you to come confess your lack of health your need for healing so that you can join them in prayer and move towards healing yourself so whether you want to start following Jesus for the first time like Levi did today or whether you want to start following again the invitation is open to you to respond this morning as we stand and sing.